All right, let's go to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 5. 1 Samuel 5, and uh, of course, in, our, uh, in preparation for our study on the, the kings of Israel, uh, we're going to, uh, we, we kind of started at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and kind of uh, laying the groundwork, closing out the time period of the judges, and then into that of the life of the prophet Samuel, and then we'll transition, of course, from there into the kings. But as we are here, we looked last week at chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, and the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, had uh, they, they brought it out into battle with this mindset, this thought that, you know, as long as we have uh, our God box with us, that we'll, uh, we'll be able to defeat the enemy. And their eyes really weren't on the Lord. They weren't repentant over their sin. They just were looking at this object, this piece of furniture that was representative of the presence of God. They were looking at it as though it was God himself. They, they saw this as their good luck charm. And, and we talked about how often we can actually get focused on uh, the visible symbols of God's presence among us, but we fail sometimes to see beyond those to God himself and, and how important it is to keep our eyes on the Lord. And so now we get into chapter 5. The Philistines have won the battle. They've taken the Ark of the Covenant and brought it into their own land. The proclamation from Eli's daughter-in-law as she had her child there and named him Ichabod is that the glory has departed from Israel. Uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was gone and so therefore the glory was departed. But we mentioned how the glory of the Lord had departed long before. Uh, when they were in their wickedness and sin. So now the Philistines have taken the ark back to their land. And verse number 1 of chapter 5 says, The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So they, they bring this, uh, the, this ark of the covenant, that symbol of the presence of God among his people, the nation of Israel, and they bring it into uh, the, the city of Ashdod. Now, Ashdod was kind of a principal city among the Philistines. And it, in a lot of ways, you could say that this was kind of like their, their form of Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem later on in Israel would be the place where the temple of Jehovah was, uh, uh, was and, and it was the center of their worship and all of that. Uh, of course, when the Ark of God was taken, it was in Shiloh. Uh, but... But here you have Ashdod, this city of the Philistines, wherein is this temple of their false god, Dagon. And they, they, because they have beaten uh, the Israelites and took that which was so important to them, they thought, you know, we're going to uh, bring the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to put it in the house of Dagon. It was kind of a, a trophy for them. It was a trophy, really, for Dagon, for this false god. Now, this false god, Dagon, was, was an idol that they had, an image that was represented uh, as a figure that was half man and half fish. It was kind of a strange thing, but the Philistines, like so many other nations, were polytheistic. Uh, they had this idea that there were many gods. Uh, they worshipped numerous gods. If you're following the outline, that's the blank there. They worshipped numerous gods. We can't be certain exactly the reason that they put the house, uh, the, put the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon, because they had many other gods as well. Um, but I think 
that there are some things that we can point out about this. First of all, it's possible that they were adding the Ark of God as the symbol of Jehovah to their collection of idols. This is a very common thing. If you remember over in, in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is there, he's preaching on Mars Hill, and, and as he's walking up Mars Hill, uh, he's beholding all of their false gods, right? They've got all these altars built to these false gods. And when he gets there and he starts preaching to them, he says, you know, as I was beholding your, your, your altars, he said, I, <clears throat> I saw one that had this inscription, to the unknown God. Now we would think, well, they didn't know Jehovah God, so maybe they were worshiping him. But in the mind of the Athenians, it was just this idea that we're going to basically have an altar to every single god that we can think of, the god of the sun and the trees and the whoever else, and just in case we missed some, we'll make an altar to the unknown god and cover our bases. And that's actually how a lot of people think. There are a lot of um, false religions out there that are polytheistic, and they just have this idea, I'll just add a little something here, and it makes me more spiritual, and it's possible that they were treating the Ark of the Covenant in that way. Well, okay, we worship Dagon and we, we worship uh, uh, Ashtaroth and all these different gods. I guess now we'll bring this in and we'll worship Jehovah God just like we worship them. In just a little side note, there isn't it amazing how many people are willing to add God to their idols, if you will. They're not necessarily willing to make him the God and, and exclusively their God. But sure, I mean, I'll, I'll add a little, I'll sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus with, you know, whatever else I have in my life. That's kind of what, uh, possibly what they were doing by bringing the Ark of the Covenant and putting it in their uh, temple. It's also a possibility, though, that it was done uh, as kind of a slight to the Israelites, mocking them. Uh, because, you know, they defeated him. And so uh, the idea is that, you know, our God, Dagon, is greater than Jehovah. And so that's a possibility that it was done to mock. If you, if we, we won't take the time this morning, but if we were to go over to 1 Samuel 31, Saul and his sons are killed in battle, and they took their armor and they, they put it in the house of Ashtaroth. In other words, they... Uh, it was kind of this trophy like our false god. Of course, they wouldn't call him a false god. But our god defeated their god. And so it was this kind of um, you know, concept of, uh, of, of, of defeat and that kind of thing. Um, let's go over to Judges chapter number 16. As you're headed that direction, uh, number three there. Since the Philistines defeated Israel, it can be assumed they thought Dagon was mightier than Israel, or maybe we could say mightier than the God of Israel. Judges chapter number 16, Samson has been defeated by the Philistines. Verse 21, the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. Then look at verse number 23. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together, for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. So think about this. We know that Samson's defeat had nothing to do with Dagon, right? And had everything to do with the fact that he basically ignored 
the, the power that he had on his life and thought that it was, his strength was in himself. And, and in his pride and his arrogance, he defied his God. And so God dealt with him. But they looked at that as a victory for their false God. And, and I think it's important for us to remember that when God's people fail and, and we're facing the consequences of our failure, that actually gives occasion and opportunity for the enemies of our God to kind of rejoice and, and be excited. I mean, isn't it amazing how a politician can, can get caught up in some kind of a scandal uh, and, and, you know, the, their side will just always kind of try and sweep it under the rug. The other side of the aisle will try and sling mud, but it doesn't last all that long. A celebrity can get caught up in a scandal, and it's kind of like no big deal. It makes a news cycle, and that's about it. But boy, when, when there's kind of an issue that comes up within a church or some prominent Christian, uh, you know, it, it comes out that, that he was not who he said he was or or, or there was some kind of a, uh, an impropriety there, all of a sudden, I mean, this is like ammunition for the enemies of God to say, see, they're no better than us, and, and, and those kind of things, right? We see that happen all the time. Um, in uh, 2 Samuel, where David has committed his sin with Bathsheba and then had Uriah killed and all of those things, Nathan the prophet comes to him and, and he's rebuking him for his sin. And one of the things that he says, he says, Thou hast given great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. You've given opportunity for those who have rejected God to, to, to blaspheme his name simply because of your failure. I think that's important for us to remember that, that when, when we fail, it, it's not only a reflection on us, but on our God as well. And it was in this situation too. So uh, they, they, they're now rejoicing that they have beaten the Israelites, the thorn in their side. But here's what happens. Let's read on 1 Samuel 5, once again, verse number 3. And it says, And when they, when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow... Behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. So... <clears throat> You've got these, those of, of, of Ashdod that came in one morning to check on the ark and Dagon was on its face before the ark of God. Isn't it interesting that the words actually appear there that Dagon was fallen on his face before the Lord. It's as though that idol itself was bowing down uh, to God. And, and obviously only the Lord could have done that. And then they, they picked up Dagon and set him back in his place and how foolish, number three there, how foolish to have a God that cannot sustain itself and needs men to set it up. I mean, it, it is kind of a, an ironic thing, isn't it? That here their, their God had fallen over and they had to pick it up and put it back in place. Instead of, though, considering what, what that might mean, that God had struck down the statue of Dagon, they just set it back up. Uh, they never stopped to consider, hey, maybe... There's some significance here. Maybe the ark represents a God that's more powerful than ours. 
they were probably looking for some kind of a uh, natural explanation, right? Oh, maybe the wind blew extra hard last night, or there was a little bit of an earthquake, or maybe, you know, they're try probably trying to explain away why their God had fallen before the Ark of the Covenant. And I, just uh, my thought on that is really that many people do that today, right? God will work in, in certain ways to show himself strong, to reveal himself to people, and there's always some explanation that they have to just kind of explain it away, just set their God back up in his place and move on about life. Well, then the next day, of course, he's fallen to the ground, his hands and his head were broken off. So the glory of God obviously wasn't diminished like uh, Eli's daughter-in-law had said, that, that it, the glory was departed. But he was showing himself strong even in the camp of Israel's enemy and in the presence of their gods. He was showing himself to be the God of gods, the King of kings. And the hand of the Lord was, was really heavy on those who lived in that area. Let's read on here in uh, verse number 5. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod. Unto this day, but the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emerods, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. Now, emerods, uh, the, the word means a, it's some form of a, a bleeding tumor. Uh, it could, could be described perhaps as hemorrhoids or dysentery or the bloody flux, but whatever it was, it was not a pleasant thing, <laughs> okay? Uh, the, uh, and I've heard people say, well, you know, really try to come to a conclusion. What were these emeralds? Bottom line, it was ugly, okay? Some kind of boils or some kind of nastiness that was coming, pain and suffering. Uh, and God had smote them. Why? Because they took the Ark of the Covenant out of the place where it belonged. Now, the men of Ashdod wanted to get rid of the Ark of Israel, verse 7. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said... The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They, they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of, uh, of the God of Israel about thither. So they said, We need to, we need to get rid of this piece of furniture that represents the presence of God because it's causing all kinds of problem in our land. So what did they do? They sent it to a different city, you know. <laughs> Makes you wonder what did the people of Ashdod have against the people of Gath, doesn't it? I mean, if God's, you know, given us trouble for this, let's send it on. Maybe you can think of a place like that. Well, okay, we got a problem right here in Franklin County. Let's send it on to Los Angeles or New York or something. You know, Let them deal with the issue, right? And so they, they send it on. But God was troubling them as well as their God. Now, think about this. If the Philistines believed the God of Israel was more powerful than Dagon, wouldn't you think that they would have left Dagon for their, you know, for the true God? Why wouldn't they say, well, okay, maybe we don't know everything, but you put these two gods together, and this one has to constantly fall on his face before this one. Let's get rid of this one and worship the true God. They didn't do that. They just said, let's get rid of the ark of God. Now, 
Earlier I said that a lot of people are willing to add Jesus to whatever else they have going on. And it's true, especially in our, in our society, right? It's not hard to get someone to say, you know, put a, a Christian bumper sticker on their car or maybe attend church once in a while or, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard to get someone to say, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll follow Jesus, I'll call myself a Christian. But what happens is the moment that the entrance of the Lord requires there to be a change in their life, they'd rather get rid of God than get rid of whatever has to go in their life. There's no real repentance there. I'm willing to add Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me anything. And folks, I think that's one reason that, that we need to remember there is a, a great fallacy in a gospel that is preached with no repentance. Because all we're really doing when we preach a gospel with no repentance is we're saying, well, yeah, just, just add Jesus. Don't worry. I mean, you don't have to change your life. You don't. Now, we understand Repentance isn't a change of life, right? It's a change of heart. But when Christ comes in, you better believe he's going to change your life. True regeneration, true salvation changes everything. And if there is no change, if there's no conversion, there's no salvation. That's, it's a result of salvation. And so in our minds, in our hearts, if we're not willing to say, you know what? I want Christ above anything else in my life that would keep me from him, there's no repentance, there's no salvation. And, and that was the situation here. Sure, we'll take the God of Israel, we'll throw him in our house of gods with other gods, but the moment that that starts causing problems for us, rather than saying, wow, we need to know this God, there's something about him that's different than the others, they just said, let's just get rid of him. Let's just get rid of God. Sad, but it happens all the time. So... They uh, gathered the, the, the leaders of Israel, or the Philistines, together to see what to do about the ark, and it was decided to take the ark to Gath. Uh, the result was devastating there as well, because God dealt with the, the people of Gath as well. Let's look at verse number 9. And it was so that after they had uh, carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. Anytime you read that verse, just cringe a little bit and move on, okay? <laughs> they had emeralds in their secret parts. And so God was, was, was dealing with that, that city as well. So they said, okay, well, the, this thing has created problems in, in uh, Ashdod and now in Gath. So what are we going to do? Verse 10, therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. <laughs> you know, they're just passing this problem along. And it came to pass as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. <laughs> uh, they realized that, that the ark of God would destroy them. And so, verse 11, they gathered the lords of the Philistine to get together again and decided to send the ark of God back to its place in Israel. Verse 11, so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to his own place that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emeralds and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And so 
there was a, that deadly destruction in Ekron. The men that did not die were smitten with emeralds, and the city was the cry of the city was great. So that's chapter five of First Samuel. There are several things that we need to consider here. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> worshiping multiple gods as the Philistines did exists around us. Uh, after hearing the gospel, some simply add Jesus to their other beliefs instead of turning from idols and false beliefs. And I've already mentioned that, but I, but I do think it's really important for us to, to, to think about that for a moment because we all know people that will say that they are Christian and yet their lives don't show it, do they? They're willing to, with their mouth, confess Christ as Lord and all that, but their life shows that there are other things that are more important to them. And so, when defeated, and let her be there, when defeated by the Philistines, the Israelites declared that the glory had departed. They blamed their failure on the absence of God. Really, their defeat was because of the presence of their sin. And I think this is what the Lord is showing in, in all of these things. He's, he's showing Israel as well as the Philistines. You cannot be blessed by God by trying to have God and wickedness. These two things don't mix. It's oil and water. They just don't work together. You can't add Christ to, uh, to all of your wickedness in your life and expect these things to coexist and your life just is a little bit better off now because you have Jesus too. Really, truly, when Christ comes in, everything else has to go. And, and the Lord is showing that not only to his people, listen, not only to Israel, but he's showing that now to the Gentiles, to the Philistines. He's showing himself strong Isn't it amazing that God, and, and, and the Lord said several times to the nation of Israel that the whole world was to know the glory of God through them. In other words, we understand in the New Testament that the New Testament church is responsible for proclaiming the gospel around the world, right? That's our responsibility. Old Testament, that was Israel's job. God, what God did among Israel was that, that the idea was that they would be a light to the rest of the world about him. But because they were not doing what they were supposed to do, now God has had to say, okay, fine, you're going to be defeated, but I'm going to get glory either way. I, I'm going to let them take the Ark of the Covenant, and I'm going to show them my power and my might, ultimately because you won't. And so... God is showing himself strong. And then, like the Philistines, there are many today who would prefer to remove God from our culture rather than to submit to him. So these are all principles that I think are important for us to consider as we, as we look at this situation that happened in Israel. But let's kind of bring that home to today, okay? Why do you think it is that there are people that would want a God that they can control? Why would you rather have a God like Dagon that you had to physically pick him up and set him up and uh, a God that was carved with hands, something that you could bow down to 
but you were in control of it. Why would you rather have that? Why would people rather have that than being committed to the Lord who desires to shape and control us? Brother Crane? Yeah. Yeah. God, and, and I'm very concerned that this is something that has crept into churches, even Bible preaching churches, this idea that God exists for us. God's existence is all about blessing us and making us happy and, and taking care of our needs, and he's there with us. Listen, God is with us. He, I mean, we have thousands and thousands of promises in the Bible about his faithfulness and blessings and all of that. But make no mistake, young and old alike, God does not exist for us. We exist for God. And we, we are here for him his glory and what does that mean it means that we, we ought not have a God of our own imagination we need to worship the God of the Bible God as he has revealed himself to us so many people have this idea that if God doesn't do exactly what I want him to do then I'm going to go looking for a different God or a different form of the same God and that you'll see people leaving solid Bible preaching churches for lesser churches because they just can't accept the God of the Bible. And they've got to have some watered down version of the truth. There are a lot of people who think that it's okay. And I, I hear this statement so frequently and it just makes me cringe. I hear people say things like this, well, it's okay to be mad at God for such and such a thing that's in my life. And, and it's like, you know what, folks? If that's our view of God, we don't understand God. I understand that God will do some things in our lives that we don't understand and we probably don't even like. But do you realize that God knows better than you do? To be angry with God is really to confess that God is wrong. And God is never wrong. If you disagree with God, he's not the one who's wrong. You are, and I am. And folks, I'll tell you, there are things that happen in my life, things that I see in the Bible that in my flesh I don't like. I resist it. But the fact that I don't like it and I resist it means that I'm wrong. I need to submit to him, not him to me. And so we need to understand that, that God isn't a God that we control. We are to be submitted and allow him to control us. Now when we do that, we'll find blessing. We will find peace when we allow God to be in control of our lives. And those who've walked with God for some time know that it's never the wrong decision to put the reins of your life in God's hand and let him do with you whatever he wants to do. There might be some fear and some trepidation about what that's going to look like. What is it going to cost me, friend? I just want to tell you, you will never regret trusting God and obeying him. Never. You will regret taking your life in your own hands and trying to make it what you want it to be. And so that's an interesting thought. Second question. What does God's judgment of the Philistines with disease and death say about his justice, particularly when he will judge the world in the great tribulation 
And then I would even add to that after the great tribulation. What, what, does, what does this show us about God and his justice? Yes, sir. Yeah. exactly right. God is in control and he is serious about sin. And sometimes I think we're, we're narrow-minded in, in thinking that God's judgment of sin is always particular and specific. And it is, in the end, we're all going to be judged directly and personally, right? But think about this. Was everyone in Israel, everyone in Israel rebellious against God when the Ark of the Covenant was taken? No. But there were those in power and, and, and in authority that were, but everyone faced the consequences of that, didn't they? Was everyone in the land of the Philistines uh, complicit in taking the Ark of the Covenant and stealing it and putting it in the house of their false gods? No. Not everyone did. There were probably plenty of people that had nothing to do with that whatsoever. They couldn't care less what's going on in the house of Dagon, whatever, you know. But all of them faced the consequences of it. Why? Because sometimes God, I mean, God's judgment, and this is something we don't necessarily like, but God's judgment, it, it, it affects more people than just those it's directed at sometimes. There's collateral damage. But we also need to remember there's not one of us that's innocent before God. There's not one of us that's not deserving. In fact, every one of us, every person in the world lives day by day in the mercy of God. The breath that you're breathing today is God's mercy giving you something that you don't deserve, life. Same is true of me. Every day we live, every blessing we have, it's just because of God's goodness and mercy and grace. And we ought to praise Him for it. But there is judgment. Can you think of any modern examples of people wanting to hold on to their false belief systems whilst, while also believing on Jesus? Can you think of examples of that? There are, um, Brother Hodnett's a missionary, and as you study missions and you, you study religions around the world, uh, there are some really strange religions out there, and there's a, a, a meshing of things. Um, one of the most common Christian religions around the world is Catholicism. Catholicism is really interesting because it has this kind of chameleon thing that it does. When it goes to uh, these different countries, it tends to mix in Christianity with whatever their native religion is. So like I spent a lot of time in the Philippines, and there the Catholic churches are, there's some semblance of what you see with Catholics here in the States, but there's a whole lot of their, uh, their native and indigenous religions mixed in with everything. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think, that I was in Thailand in 2008. And Thailand is a Buddhist country. 
However, one of the primary tenets of Buddhism is that there is no such thing as spirits and that kind of thing. Thailand, though, is one of the most spiritist countries in the world. They've got spirit houses on every block where they're worshiping all these. And somehow it's blended with Buddhism that denies the existence of spirits. It's very strange. But that's kind of how religions work sometimes. They just kind of mesh with whatever is happening around them. And I think that we need to be careful, even as Bible-believing Christians, not to allow the world to blend into our beliefs and, and practices. We've got to go by the Word of God exclusively. Ms. Smith. Yeah, sure, Halloween's coming up at the end of the month, isn't it? Yep. Sure. Yep, I understand. I understand. We let a lot of the world come into our faith, don't we? Absolutely. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's even a lot of, um, especially in some of the more modern, like emerging church type things, you're seeing a lot of new age philosophy entering in. Um, it's actually influencing a lot of modern Christian music. Um, these, I, there's a lot we could get into about that, but there's just there's a lot of influence with new age. Uh, religion that is creeping into Christian churches and it's being, um, it's kind of making its way in just through emotionalism and experience um, as opposed to truth. I believe that we ought to have some feelings when it comes to the things of God, but our feelings should follow truth, not the other way around. And, and that's one thing that's failing in a lot of places is we're allowing our feelings to lead the way and dictating what truth is based on how we feel, rather than allowing the truth of the word of God to direct our emotions in worshiping God. Yes, ma'am. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Jesus said that, right? You can't, no man can serve two masters. You, you, can't, you can't mix the two. It's either, it's either God or your sin. It's either God or the things of the world. You can't bring these two things together. And Jesus said he cannot serve God and mammon. That's absolutely true. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly right. If you, don't, if you don't have strong convictions about things in your own heart, about what the Bible says... Uh, any smooth talker could easily come in and persuade you otherwise. Yes, ma'am.
Amen. Praise the Lord. Yes, sir. Oh, it's, it's fine, brother. When has that ever gotten my way? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you make the idol, it's probably going to be something like you, right? I mean, we really here's the thing. Here's when when we serve and worship a god that conforms to our own understanding, what we're really doing is worshiping ourselves. We become gods. We become the one that dictates what, you know. And so we're worshiping this false idol that we think is representative. You know, obviously we're not carving images and bowing down to them probably in our society. But we, we have things that we put in front of God. And really what we don't realize is we're, we're actually bowing down to ourselves rather than to God and his Exactly. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good discussion this morning. I appreciate it. Let's have a word of prayer and we will be dismissed.